0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about the so-called indie R&B scene of the early 2010s that spawned The Weeknd and James Blake. My name is Stephen Hayden, and I'm
1: joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, as long as I've been writing about music, like on a semi-professional level, I mean, you could take this back to me, you know, writing about, uh, you know, the President of the United States of America and 311 in high school newspaper, college newspaper. Oh, or wow. Whatever. I mean, as, as long as I've been putting my byline on uh, music writing, I've always had I don't, I don't know if I've always had these thoughts about like, what did it be like if I had really, you know, put my all into it? What if I had at 22, you know, taken the Stephen Hyden route and gone the, uh, at the alter, alt weekly and the local newspaper and, you know, just really made this my life's work. And, you know, I, I yes. do have a lot of regrets about, um, you know, it like, would I have written books by now? Would I have alienated everyone in my family? Um, and, yes, you know, m- all of it mostly positive. And then I and then every February without fail, I wake up and realize that I would n- be professionally obligated to once again have an opinion about the Super Bowl halftime show, the Grammys, <laughs> right, and the Rock and Roll yeah. Hall of Fame. Every year without yes. fail. And I don't know, yeah. with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when that stuff started popping up uh, the other day, I like was This close to wishing for like, you know, like Groundhog's Day, like six more weeks of guitar smashing etiquette discourse if I did not have to hear people pretend to care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anymore, you know? (laughs) You you know, I mean, I I was joking with you uh, before we started recording, but I actually think
0: this might be a good idea is that if we just brand this beginning banter segment where we just talk about what's going on if we just call it like the most annoying music narrative of the week because i feel like i feel like that's what we end up talking about like just what was the most annoying thing that people were hung up on uh you know during the previous you know few days because i I feel like there's always something and this week yeah there was really a cavalcade (laughs) yeah you had you had phoebe bridger smashing the guitar which Lasted that, that 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 discourse lasted way longer than I expected. I figured, okay, we'll burn ourselves out with this by Sunday, Monday, we'll reboot and we'll just forget what happened. And we get the Super Bowl going on. You know, people are gonna you know be distracted by that. And it was like you know like people still talking about that on Wednesday and yeah. Thursday. And and I don't know, like I had never heard the argument that, like, smashing a guitar is disrespectful to disadvantaged people. Before that, like, have yeah. you heard that argument being made? Like, um, I feel like that was a thing that I heard yeah. people say, like, oh, like, it's very, it's, it's like a sign of privilege I, to smash a guitar. I, Which, by the way, she didn't even, like, really smash it. I'm sure she can still <laughs> play that guitar. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> just give it to the, the, the tech. I'm sure they just had to, like, you know, get a screwdriver out and... Yeah straighten everything out. I don't know how to fix it. I mean, guitar, I, but. I've
1: heard it, uh, you know, I've heard from musicians like that. It's, I don't know, wasteful because, you know, the sort of people who would smash a guitar are probably smashing expensive guitars. And it's like, what the hell? I've got this like Dan Electro from, uh, you know, reverb.com that I bought for 85 bucks, which by the way, that's like the guitar that she smashed. It was like a super cheap guitar. And I mean, people never really bring up though, something about like, you know, pyrotechnics, like uh, how that can be wasteful, and I mean, I like we said last week in the episode, like people are just so bored, and you really can't, oh go, yeah. you can't go more than a few days without like Phoebe Bridgers' discourse anyway. So this I, just this just <laughs> yeah, kind she of a lot. She's a genius. She's a genius.
0: Again, she is a genius. She like the way that she can make uh, middle-aged men like embarrass themselves online <laughs> uh, is amazing. She's, she's got, it's like a Jedi mind trick that she. Is more skilled at than anyone I've ever seen. I mean, but you know, it's like if you read stories about the Who, like Pete Towns and smashing guitars. Usually, it's like they're like repairing those guitars after they smash them. It's not like they're just (laughs) throwing them away. Especially like when they were first starting out, didn't have a lot of money. Or like Nirvana, even. I feel like the guitars that Kurt Cobain would smash, they didn't just like throw them away. Usually, some someone would have to like you know duct tape them back together so they could continue to use them. I also wonder like is. If you're a famous musician and you, like, have, like, a hundred guitars, is that also wasteful? I mean, because you're just, like, hoarding guitars and there's, you know, people out there who could be playing them theoretically. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to follow this train of thought (laughs) to its farthest extreme. Um, But, yeah, you talk about the Super Bowl halftime show. I have to say that, like, that is one of my least favorite think pieces Uh. that gets written. And I've and no shots at anyone who wrote one this year, because I've had to do that in the past, where an editor wanted me to review the halftime show, where you end up sort of like projecting all these pretensions onto something that is I think just purely spectacle. And I think for the most part no one really thinks that deeply about, other than, you know, oh that was that was weird or that was bad or that was good. You don't really, like, look into the implications of a Super Bowl halftime show the way a music critic does. So, like, even more than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame discourse, like, I'm really grateful that my editor didn't make me write about the halftime show this year. <laughs> That's always the hardest thing to Have you ever had to write a halftime show, I've, Big Piece? Well,
1: I've not. But, you know, the good news is maybe your editor said, hey, save it for IndieCast. But, I mean, like, with the Super Bowl halftime show, <laughs> like, it to me – You know, there's usually, like, you know, some argument to be made about, like, oh, how come they have Maroon 5? Like, let's get, you know, this artist or whatnot. And I think they all align, like, the Super Bowl halftime show, the Grammys, and, um, you know, the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, people want to use them as, like, platforms to discuss, like, you know, real issues within the music industry. Um, And yet, at the same time, you have to realize, like, all these things are, like they're in, they're like industry awards, basically. Like, there's really not much, like, you could say, like, you know, do better Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but, like, they really have no incentive to do better. I mean, you know, at the very least... Well, yeah. The, yeah, at the very least, the Grammys, like, even if, like, we spend our time, like, talking about, like, stuff that isn't the most popular stuff on Earth, um, at least the Grammys has some sort of dialogue with what's happening in the world. Like, the Grammys do have, like, a real-time impact on, um, you know careers and so forth like yeah it would be cool if like chic and like Fella cootie got into the rock and roll hall of fame will it like alter i don't know the scales of justice in any way um if you know some kid in cleveland ohio goes to the rock and roll hall of fame when it's like open again and sees it um i don't know it just seems to me it's like do you really care man (laughs) it's like this is well like with like with the halftime show, I feel like, let's say they had booked the Foo Fighters, you
0: know, like we, yes. we we talked about that last week. Callback. You know, there would have been think pieces where they're like, does this mean that rock is back? What does this <laughs> say about mainstream rock at the Foo Fighters or at the Super Bowl halftime show? And it just like, you know, goes into this whole thing where, where you take this one booking, which is a big deal. I mean, that, that is like, I guess, the most watched entertainment show over the course of uh, any year. But just taking that and then using that as like, you know, taking the pulse of the industry in in, (laughs) in some way, which always irritates me because that especially happens with with, with rock bands. It's like if a rock band puts out a record, it's always like, this is the last arena rock band, you know, or this is like the last successful indie rock band. Mm -hmm. And then another, you know, fairly well-known indie rock record comes out like three months later. Then that is the last indie rock record, you know, like all these things that people are just extrapolating to create a narrative on something so people will think it's more important than it actually is. I mean, th- th- that's what gets tiresome. <laughs> that, I think as a writer and also as a reader, sometimes with these things.
1: Well, I think with the rock bands, like with I, I remember when like Coldplay was like the Super Bowl halftime show. I think like what people when we have like rock bands or just you know adjacent rock bands, like Maroon Five playing the Super Bowl halftime show, it gets. People, particularly music writers, excited because like it's they want them to fail so badly so they can like talk about the injustice of how like I don't know like one of the most famous pop artists on the face of the planet didn't get to play the Super Bowl halftime show. So I mean, there's value in like having bands like that play, but I don't know. It just seems like. Like you said, it's like us just sowing seeds for the content farm and not even like enthusiastically. It's like it's like February is the real like got to make the donuts time of uh, music (laughs) writing, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, another narrative too that came out of the Super Bowl, and this I, I would also nominate this for like most annoying music narrative of the week was like the discussion over the Bruce Springsteen co- uh, commercial. Oh, like yeah. Like the middle, like where, where he's in the Jeep and he's touching soil and he's Kansas, visiting a church yeah. and, and all this stuff. And look, I'm going to be honest here. <laughs> you know, I wasn't covering the Super Bowl. I was watching it purely just as a spectator. So like. You know, I feel like I was like most people who watch the Super Bowl, like I was having some drinks. I was uh I had a couple couple uh puffs of something something. I was like feeling really good. So like by the second half, all my tweets were like very friendly. I think I even like <laughs> tweeted something nice about like the Wayne and Garth commercial, which I'm sure was terrible. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, "Uh, oh, I like everything." And I think I tweeted something nice about the Springsteen commercial. Purely just as an aesthetic thing, because I was like, oh, it's Bruce Springsteen talking soulfully while touching dirt. Like, this is very nice. Not really thinking about the political implications of it, which I acknowledge is a pretty wishy-washy statement in that in that uh, commercial, uh, you know, to be nice about it. But apparently there's people that just watch the Super Bowl stone-cold sober and hate everything. And that seemed like the majority of social media, like, watching that game. Yeah. And I'm just like, man we got to blow off some steam here, man. Like, can we just like watch this terrible football game? You know, I, I don't know. I just feel like we could all, you know, we're all <laughs> bored. We're all uptight. You know, I'm in the part of the country where it's like below zero, like every single day at this point. So like I'm living in prison, essentially in my
1: house. <laughs> we, we, real creed, I, real creed hours right here, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's tough. Um uh, this is a hard pivot here, but like, <laughs> have you heard uh, that new record uh, by that band,
1: uh, Black Country New Road? Uh no, this is not a hard pivot because, like, when we when we talk about like, <laughs> thi- like, haha, this is fun to talk about. Oh my god, this is like so annoying. I mean, like, this is so for for. I want to make sure that like we we are connecting with the IndieCast audience. Black Country New Road. Um, this brings together several threads that I always enjoy seeing in um you know, in my, in indie music, which is that when you get like the UK publications get like super excited about a band, I believe the quietest has called uh, Black Country New Road the best band in the world right now. This is their first album. <laughs> uh, but, what? Uh, yeah, but the, uh, uh, shout out to the quietest. Like if if you ever think that there's like too much consensus in like the in in the indie rock discussion or the critical world, their year end comes out and like I've heard of maybe ten of like the top one hundred albums that they love. Right. But um, but this this Black Country New Road, it's like kind of part of a you know, a greater uh, surge of talky post-punk type acts coming out of Britain right now. And this one is like the most talky post-punk of them all. Um, first off, I got to give a shout out to the album cover. It's It reminds me of like a vagrant circa 2001 picture, like Hey Mercedes or Saves the Day. Apparently they were just like kind of goofing on like, I don't know, generic album covers on that front. But so I, I've heard it described as like, nick or like car seat headrest if or like if he was into like uk post-punk or like if nick cave was reading twitter or something along those lines and with like klezmer music yeah yeah so and you gotta you gotta work
0: in the klezmer element here because i feel like this record (laughs) is like and we've talked about this how we always are looking for bands that um stir the pot are sort of yeah, exactly. Bands that are fun to argue about because yeah. there there are certain artists that you feel like are just preordained to be praised and if you take a shot at them, you're going to be arguing all day on Twitter with people about it. And sometimes it's like, do I really care that much about this band to say anything? You know, I don't know. Like they're not that significant. You know, I don't know if I would really like want to have an argument about this band. But this is one of those bands where I feel like You are equal parts people loving them and people who can't stand them. And I know for me, I'm kind of in the middle. Like, this record to me is like, there are moments where I'm like, this is a great record. And there's other moments where I'm like, this is the most annoying record I've heard in a while. And it it goes back and forth like that. And I appreciate it on that level because it's not a boring record
1: at all. Uh, I know it isn't. Well, (laughs) to me, it kind of gets a little bit Boring. I mean, like, first off, I gotta say the instrumental uh, that leads out the album—that one I-, I can fully go in for that one. But um, you know, just uh, that's the klezmery one, isn't yeah, it? Isn't yeah, yeah, like the I've, most klezmer heavy one. Yeah, I-, I do fuck with that song, but um, yeah, it's it it you're right in that like it's an album meant to be argued about. Like I think quite often, particularly as I don't know our discussions uh, in, in the general sphere go more towards like you know kind of pop and like centrist indie rock like i would just love to see someone like just write this like three thousand words screed about how much they hate like weather station or something like that like but you can't really imagine it like not that that record's like that i you know it's a good record but it's not one that seems to inspire like a lot of animus on the other side of things and like i think with a lot of bands like black country new road and like black midi um you almost get like kind of a free shot where it's like if you think that they're whack, like you can actually go out and say that, and you know that's that's kind of a rarity, particularly for like a new band. And but yeah, I mean, there's like lyrics about like Kanye in there. There's like self-referential lyrics. Like one lyric I enjoyed where they called themselves like the, the world's second best slint cover band or something like that. Um, I mean, it's right. it, 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 I when I listen to this record, um, someone. Uh someone uh, brought up that, that it reminded them of like uh, Frog Eyes and like Sunset Rubdown. Like all this like under artsy stuff from 2000, you know, the early 2000s or the mid 2000s. Um, oh, yeah. And, I love Sunset Rubdown. Yeah. And I that, don't think it's as catchy as that no, record. But, but I think he's right in the sense that like if I were 24, like – the same age i was when i discovered those bands i would probably think that this is the most important band right now because i think that's an age where 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 you like get a you try to get like a greater sense of like music should be like important and it should be challenging it's like you know i uh that it's just it's not enough to like music you like just because you think it sounds good and um you know you haven't quite developed that sense of self yet so it's done through like like I, I, hear from so many people I talk to about like emo music, how like they loved it when they were up to eighteen. And then from eighteen to like twenty eight, they go through this kind of Rumspringa where like they just get super hard into indie rock and like are kind of embarrassed, and then by like thirty, they're back into it again. Like this is this is early, this is like early to mid twenties. Like this is what music should be type music, and I have to appreciate that on that level.
0: Well, and also, I mean, and this is a record, too, that I look forward to revisiting, and I feel yeah. like the parts that annoy me could come to be my favorite parts of the record. I mean, one thing that I think I would like to hear from more artists are, it's just a willingness to be obnoxious sometimes, yes. <laughs> or to do things that might be perceived as obnoxious, whether it's because you're really noisy, or like grading, like that kind of stuff, which I feel like has really been sort of worked out of music in general, I guess because of the streaming age and, like, how easy it is to just skip over something. And there seems like there is this common fear that, like, if you don't grab people immediately, that they're going to change the song. And uh, I worry that, like, you're going to lose a band, and this is a band I know you don't like, but, like, I love Fiery Furnaces, like, a record like Blueberry Boat, (laughs) like, where you have, like the record starts with like three or four minutes of like a drum machine and like a squeaking noise. And you're like, where's the song going? And you might hear that the first time and think that it's totally annoying. And then you sit with it a little bit longer and you come to really love it. And, uh, I just think that willingness to be annoying and obnoxious is really brave and kind of admirable, even when it is annoying me. And I, I appreciate it even if like, it's not really hitting me right
1: away. So, uh, so I would we'll do, check out that record. By I would the way. do anything. Like you, I my my feelings on Blueberry Boat are not a secret. But I would just love for a record of that nature to come around, where it's like the sort of thing that um, a certain subset of the you know indie rock sphere just absolutely loves, and other people get like confused as shit about. And because I think it's really been a while where there's been something that proprietary to uh, you know people. Who are into indie rock, you know? Like I think there's the it, the consensus is kind of edged that stuff out, and um, right, yeah. I, I'm, or even I, something like Animal Collective, yeah. You know, Animal
0: Collective, who was like a really big band in indie rock for you know quite a few years, who I think now would just be, yeah. Uh, it'd be, I, I can't imagine that getting the kind of boost it did in the aughts. No, not much would because it would be, <laughs> yeah. That's a band we need to talk. Oh. We've been talking about doing an Animal Collective yeah. episode. At some point, I, I we we need to do that soon. Got put that on the horizon. Right. Yes, uh, but for now, let's get to, let's get to our mailbag segment. Yes, uh, this question comes from our listener Richard. Richard, thanks for writing in. He says, "Hey guys, thanks for all that uh, you, meaning me and Ian, have been doing." <laughs> Keeping us informed and inspired during COVID. Wow. IndieCast is always the perfect way to get the weekend started each and every Friday. Kudos go out to both of you for making it happen each week. Richard, that was very sweet. Thank you very much for saying that. Shout out to Richard. Uh, And he says, my question relates to artists B-sides and how you see that going forward. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, I found myself making multiple best of B-sides lists with such artists as Radiohead, Oasis, Foo Fighters, U2, Soundgarden, Coldplay, and Pearl Jam. I would even argue that in Oasis best of b-sides playlist is better than an oasis best of albums cuts playlist um and we also see legacy artists such as tom petty releasing all of his Wildflowers b-sides as well as the boss he's known for his b-sides as well but in today's world are we going to see the same uh cadence of b-sides material from past and present artists it seems as though in the streaming age the new normal is to release an (laughs) album with an extra track that didn't make the record, or to random, randomly release songs as a mini-EP or a two-track release. Has streaming killed the B-side, or is it a shift to a different format where we don't have to wait all these years to hear unreleased songs anymore? Uh, that question, again, is from Richard. Um, it's a great question. because. Yeah. Uh, I say this as someone because I love B-sides. I love a lot of the artists that you mentioned uh, there who are all, you know, many of them are known for their great B-sides. I feel like we need to explain what this is maybe to some people because (laughs) it seems very anachronistic, but like, you know, let's say like in the 90s you loved Oasis or you love Smashing Pumpkins and like you listen to their albums constantly almost to the point of like being sick of them and then you go to the record store and you notice that there's like these standalone sig- singles like where there's an album track and then there's like maybe two or three extra songs that you haven't heard on the record and you go home and you realize like wow these songs are actually like really great and that was something that was like pretty common uh in like the pre-streaming age you'd have these songs that you kind of had to literally kind of physically dig for that were you know situated outside of albums and it felt like you know like a nice little added bonus it was really fun um and as someone who grew up in that time i romanticized that I, i'm someone who sometimes feels that like the internet sort of flattened everything and made it impossible to say that this is an album this is a single this is a b-side everything kind of gets dumped in the same bucket now which uh, on one hand i think that's great because it makes it more accessible. I think you could also say as someone who wouldn't romanticize, you know, that sort of singles format that you could call that a form of price gouging, you know, because you (laughs) did kind of force people to buy like three new songs for like $10 or $12. I mean, that was a common occurrence back then. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of things to criticize about that. Uh, But, you know, I am a person who came up in that era. So I, still have some affinity for that um and i don't know i mean it does seem though that like i mean b-sides i don't know how you would even do that unless you made a point like a band made a point of like making like a seven inch that was only in a physical format that had a b-side that you couldn't stream like that's really the only way you could do that Mm -hmm. i think and have it exist as a b-side Uh, I don't know. I I mean, what do you think about this? I mean, it seems like B-sides as a concept are pretty much done. Yeah. I mean, just,
1: just, just by definition, like a B-side can't really exist unless, you know, you have an A-side and uh, like it, it speaks specifically to the physical format. And so I think that like the terminology that's going to be used going forward is like maybe album track and non-album track. But as you know, our kind uh, reader Richard points out, uh the album format isn't really uh it, it, we're we're shifting away from that and you know as far as b-sides go like in my experience i mean i you you point like i people will never you know know the feeling of like seeing like where did this radiohead like single come from like uh you know you see the airbag one in stores and it's like wow now i can hear this song palo alto and it's like Oh, I just spent 7 bucks on a 2-minute instrumental. Ha, ah, look, wow, that's awesome. Like I'm 17 years old and I have no money whatsoever. What a great what a great expenditure. But um yeah, I, there is particularly with like smashing pumpkins you brought up, like I think if like all those songs were available at all times, things like, you know, of and The Aeroplane Flies High wouldn't feel quite as special anymore. Um, and also like, I just gotta, I just gotta say like about Apple music's like, you know, retroactive adding of B-sides. Um, I think we see that more and more, like Richard pointed out, like just, um, artists just, you know, they get songs like, okay, let's, let's, let's have this opportunity to like, you know, put this back in the news again and we'll just put, you know, more songs on it. And now it's a deluxe version. And that happened with a uh, little baby's my turn last year, which is probably like the biggest hip hop record of 2020 you know it really wasn't what it was until the deluxe version came out and so um you know i i I think with where i think with like where they're at like they don't really exist like artists just kind of need to be in the news now and there's really no incentive to hold back b sides um and so i think what we're seeing already are more eps i think we're seeing more uh, One off singles like more demos just pe- being put out there in real time, and um, maybe as I don't know, live music or you know, things get closer back to normal, you might see uh, artists just try to bundle them and so they can get reviewed. Um, I don't think we've seen, I think that this part is very much in flux right now, um, and yeah, we're not going to have a yellow lead better, you know. Whatever whatever you're expl- right. <laughs> your whatever, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we can use le- yellow lead better as like a, a frame of reference given the guy uh, you know, given Richard pointed out like he, you know, Foo Fighters, Coldplay, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, like he's one of our people. So <laughs> Um, right. Yeah. I, yeah. Just the idea of like, I, I guess, like, because yeah, there, there's
0: always going to be songs that like didn't make it on a record that are going to be like you said positioned as like non-album tracks, mm-hmm. but like that romanticized idea of a B-side, which is like a song that um, is maybe off the beaten path. Yeah. That you have to like dig for a little bit. Um, that I think was a product of the physical media age, and. Again, I think there were great things about that. There's also things that if you don't have nostalgic attachment to that era, you can mm. easily criticize it and say that it was bad. At this Because it's like, you know, why wouldn't Yellow Better or Acquiesce or, uh, you know, Starla or whatever? Like, why couldn't these songs just be available? I mean, Starla is a bad example because that was put on Pisces Iscariot. But, um, you know, so it's both things. And it's something, it's one of the many things that... If you're an old person, you can feel bad about <laughs> yeah. going away, and no one else will care. Um, let's pivot now to our main <laughs> topic of discussion in this episode, which is looking back at indie R&B, alternative R&B, PBR&B, all <laughs> hipster R&B, yeah. that whole thing, um, which occurred as a fad, I guess, really kind of begins 10 years ago. Yes. And we're talking about it because this week marks the 10th anniversary of one of the big records, I guess, of that scene or movement or whatever you want to call it, which is the self-titled debut by James Blake. Um, There was also, of course, The weekend's Halftime Show, which we've already talked about. Uh, Weekend, of course, being a big artist uh, associated with indie R&B, and now he is... I mean, can we just call him the biggest pop star in the world? No, right because, I mean, no, like,
1: I don't think he's bigger than like say Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Rihanna. But okay, like, he's definitely up there.
0: I think he's bigger than Beyonce at this point. I mean, like Blinding Lights is like I think closing in on two billion streams. <laughs> I mean, Beyonce I think is more famous than him, yeah. but in terms of like statistics, yeah, like the weekend I think. Uh, is yeah. yeah, maybe second to Taylor Swift. Yeah. He's for sure like top three, top five yeah. pop stars in the world. Yeah. Uh, which is like a, an incredible path for him over the past decade. Mind-blowing. Uh, that he's taken. But um, what is indie R&B if you're not familiar with it? Well, it was basically like this gaggle of like non-connected artists that really kind of came, I think, into prominence around 2011 yeah. that put out records that intersected indie rock, R&B, and electronic music. And I, I feel like it diverges – from mainstream R&B at least of that time in terms of like the disposition of like a lot of these artists like they were more sort of introverted not really interested in like creating like obvious pop hits you know not very like I guess like it's not like dance music really it's like very insular um I think that like in terms of like the indie influence I feel like Bonnie Ver oh yeah was a huge thing on on these artists it's sort of like if you wanted to make like your your like cabin record but instead of referencing like folk music, you were referencing like '80s and '90s R and B. Yeah, like that seemed to be like the the sort of nut shell description of how you could talk about a lot of these artists. Um, I actually uh, looked up uh, Ababa uh think piece about indie R and B from 2011 because uh, he was writing about this and and he had a list of like records that came up from 2011 that he associated with this and it's a pretty interesting list because yeah. some of these artists are still you know very well regarded you have Frank ocean on here nostalgia yep. ultra you have Solange mm-hmm. uh, say for the time being obviously she's really big Janelle Monae, the arc Android oh, man. Um, the weekend obviously uh James Blake is not on this list which I think is interesting um, uh, but uh, you have th- but then you have like how to dress mm-hmm. well you have active child you have oh yeah those are uh Jay davy negative <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're you're uh, yeah, you're a big yeah. "How to Dress I, Well" I, I, fan. Like, I you? I like, know yeah. I know you're about to go there. Well, but... no, I'm not gonna. I mean, look. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, look. Yeah, I, I, I'm kidding though. I mean, you and I come from this. I come at this. I think from a slightly different perspective. There were some artists yeah, associated absolutely. with this that I actually quite liked. Like, I I actually liked um, House of Balloons, the, the like the first weekend, Loved it. album. I thought yeah. the, the next two that were released under that like that trilogy umbrella, I thought they were much more hit or miss. House of Balloons, I think, really holds together well. I reviewed Nostalgia Ultra for the AV Club, and I I really liked that record, the Frank Ocean record. Wow, what a time capsule. Yeah, you can look that up. (laughs) Uh, How to Dress Well, I did not like really at all. James Blake, to me, I revisited that record this week, and I liked it more now than I remember then. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this just in general, but like, I think the thing with James Blake that bothered me and still bothers me a bit now though not as much was his voice like um and this is too strong of a word but i'm gonna use it anyway (laughs) there's something kind of pathetic about his vocals like a like a sniveling kind of quality that i that i found really kind of repulsive at the time and it really turned me (laughs) off this sort of like I'm almost trying too hard to show how emotional or how sensitive I am, where it becomes off-putting, you know? And yeah. I and I feel like that was a hallmark of some of these artists that I always, it just turned me off. And, it, and to me, it kind of yeah. separates it from, like, mainstream R&B, which typically has been defined by, like, great singers, you know, who are really strong and out there and, like, came from, you know, Sometimes like from a gospel tradition, but certainly from like a more sort of like continuum of like great R&B singers from like the 60s and 70s. And then moving that into the 80s and 90s, whereas James Blake didn't have that quality. It was more of like this kind of quivering, almost like mm-hmm. like a cool James Blunt type voice that yeah. ah, I just found repulsive. <laughs> I got a lot of levels. and But that's kind of been influential this decade.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, first off, I just got to say like the Midwest is like really coming out. It's like for that. Well, I don't want to sound like overly mean, but I find your voice to be pathetic and like just so physically repulsive that i jump out of my skin, but bless your heart. Um, yeah, it's actually funny. Like back in the day, like a really, um, you know, a really common thing to do was to, you know, really common troll move was to confuse James Blake and James Blunt. But, um, yeah, it's. It, I, I think the reason that uh, James Blake wasn't put in that list, which is otherwise like really on point, and comprehensive, you know, in addition to uh, like just kind of indie sensibilities. I mean, you had Cole, you know you had Frank Ocean covering Coldplay, uh, you know, the weekend sampling Susie Sue and Beach House, like a couple of rap artists from that time were sampling Beach House and Cloud Rap and such. But like James Blake came from more of like. In 2010, you would actually maybe call him like dubstep. Like this is dubstep before dubstep became like dubstep. And he was on RNS Records. His his EPs in 2010 were you know really abs- kind of abstract electronic music. Um, and when the 2011 record came out, like it, it's one of those albums that that even at the time you know it's like this is gonna be kind of an important mile marker going forward. Um, and at the you know at the time, I remember like I remember I was like a ground zero for this stuff at Pitchfork and like I remember having like a conversation uh, with other guys there where it's like w- it, it came out around the same time as co- Copy Zonoscope, which is of course their kind of lesser follow up to in Ghost Colors, which is you know one of the greatest records of its time. But it, I remember the I like, co- like Zonoscope conversation- too though. Yeah, Zonoscope's got it's solid. It's got jams. Yeah, solid, solid record. Um, And I remember at the time, there was just the, like, the conversation seemed to go like, well, I think we actually like this cut copy record better, but we know that, like, the James Blake one is more important in a way. Um, And I think that's kind of held up, you know, over the years. Like, when you look back at, I I listened to this record as well, um, very recently, James Blake self-titled. And yeah, there's the that vocal affectation that i think boney vare definitely also has some blame for this becoming like one of the dominant singing nodes of like the 2010s um but it, i mean it holds up in the, it, there's like some incredible songs and others that i just cannot remember 10 years later for the life of me um an interesting thing that people had pointed out um you know when it celebrated its 10th anniversary is that it somehow did not make pitchfork's top 200 albums of the decade um which yeah like surprising right because i mean woo life did um i think woo life's better record but um it's 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 one of those situations where you would think like oh this is this meant signify that like james blake has you know fallen from grace as an artist or that uh, he's not important which is actually not at all the case i think when I listened to that album most recently, um, I'm gonna, this is the only way I would compare it to Nirvana's Nevermind. But, <laughs> uh, but it. when I hear that record now, I, I just get inundated with the presence of all the terrible music that it inspired. It's so hard to, sep- like you can obviously tell that he's more skillful and more innovative on that front. But like, I just think about the next couple of years, particularly, how everyone just kind of was doing that cut and click kind of vocal sound or throwing in those like non-quantized drums. And um, and also like with James Blake, just the fact that he made like pretty boring music going forward. Um, he became much more conventional. And I think where we get into the reason we can talk about him as being in this realm of indie R&B is that. You know, you had mentioned like when this stuff was first getting started, people were getting Coldplay and Beach House and so forth. But like James Blake really got adopted super quick into a lot of uh, indie R&B slash rappers, like kind of uh, coteries, you know, like he was he was guy hanging out with like Tyler, the creator, um, you know, Chance, the rapper. I think those two lived together in L.A. um, uh, and so forth and so it was kind of hard to be honest in a way about like how boring a lot of his music became because it, it, it became kind of an, it's like, well, if you don't like James Blake, you're not down with what the kids are listening to. And that's why I found it also interesting that we also celebrated the 10 year anniversary of Tower the creator's Yonkers, which is, that's, an, that was like another major pivot point where you could kind of sense the critical narrative of the 2010s going from like, criticism to like cultural coverage
0: you know right like
1: trying to interpret what's going on rather than trying to guide the conversation
0: i want to go back to like what you were saying about like how james blake's record didn't make the pitchfork top 200 and my theory on that is that i think that the knock against indie r&b in the moment was that people who are actual fans of like mainstream r&b look at indie r&b mm-hmm. almost as a way for like indie kids to like launder R&B music into their realm and it was like why don't you just listen to like real R&B music and I feel like that (laughs) argument really won out as the decade wore on where I think a lot of people maybe felt a little embarrassed that like you couldn't just listen to like regular RB music that you somehow had had to like apply these like indie aesthetics in order to make it acceptable to listen to, which is what makes like the evolution of the weekend. I think really interesting to me because yeah. if you listen to his early records, it does seem to be using pop music as a reference point in this more sort of indie realm. And then as he goes forward, uh, he goes from using pop music as like a reference to like actually making pop music. And I guess yeah, the big transition for him would probably be like the Beauty and the Madness, that 2015 record where, you know, ah. that's the record like where, you know, I Can't Feel My Face, that's on that record. And like The Hills is on that record. The Hills, to me, kind of sounds more like House of Balloons era yeah. weekend, but it just sounds like way bigger. Uh, And better. It's by the way, it's beauty behind the madness. I think I said beauty and the madness, but he's beauty and the madness too. You know, he's got both of those things. Um, But anyway, (laughs) but I feel like that was his transition from like I'm this indie guy who's sort of referencing pop music to like I'm actually going to make monster pop jams, and that leads all the way up to, uh, you know, where he is now. And I have to say, like, I'm not the biggest Weekend fan in the world, but like, I actually really liked his halftime show um like visually I thought it was interesting um and just hearing like all of his hits together it really shows like yeah this guy can play stadiums and like it is totally credible doing that because like these songs are enormous and they work really well I think his albums for me tend to break down a little bit beyond the hits but like you know referencing a conversation we had last week like uh, a weekend greatest hits record I think, is pretty undeniable. Which exists now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I saw that, that. I saw that on Spotify this week. Um, it's pretty undeniable. I mean, and uh, so it's been great. It's been really interesting seeing him transition from like the indie R and B world to just like the pop world, where other than Taylor Swift, I feel like he's maybe the biggest thing right now.
1: Yeah, I think it, what's what's interesting with The Weekend. Someone pointed out that like for someone who's like that ubiquitous, like his songs are actually like he he's like one of the least annoying pop stars and, and like it, it's hard to describe that quality but it's like oh yeah that song sounds good like it's they're everywhere and yet they never quite feel as like you know oppressive as a song that gets like two built two billion like literally two billion uh spotify plays can be but yeah with the weekend um his trajectory is not all that different than a lot of the people that you had mentioned already, like how to dress well or Autan Navu. Um where they go from this more like kind of vaporous uh post Drake sort of sound to like actual pop music. And the fact that like the weekend could stick the landing, like I mean, let's artists like that coming from an indie world, like I actually I actually remember um I love like for I I was like first getting off drugs and alcohol, like getting sober in March of 2011, which is like funny because like the House of like I loved House of Balloons maybe because I could live vicariously through it, um, and I loved the I loved all three of them, and I also like reviewed trilogy like in 2012, like that's how long ago uh a lot of this indie R and B stuff was happening where like guys like you and I could be relevant relevant enough to review it and. Also, like, when after I reviewed Trilogy, like, not 30 minutes passed by, and 40, one of the producers, like, emailed me, like, saying how nice that was. Like, that's how long ago this stuff was. And now, um, and now, 40, but,
0: is probably like living in like a diamond encrusted, like, houseboat in Bermuda somewhere. Or yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm sure yeah. he's like a gajillionaire. I mean, going back to Frank Ocean, we haven't really talked about him that much, and we don't have a lot of time uh, to talk about him now, but like, he is someone who actually hasn't gone that weekend route of being like a huge pop star like he is now like Uh, the most sort of celebrated well he has I mean has he I mean he hasn't made like anything like Blinding Lights he hasn't made anything like that obviously kind of going for the gold I feel like he's been the guy that uh, he can go on Saturday Night Live and perform with John Mayer but like he I think still has that sort of untouchable mystique where um, his power comes from not doing the pop thing and yeah. he's this reclusive sort of genius that people just revere because they feel like he does whatever he wants to do. Uh so he's kind of like yeah. in his own solar system in a way, kind of away from everyone else. I kind of feel like too, yeah. like did 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 Frank Ocean just steal James Blake's Thunder too? Like did the did was that like a market correction as far as like Channel Orange? Because I feel well, like I feel like he I feel like he took over the like introspective, quiet, like Indie R&B lane, just hijacked it, and like James Blake never had a chance after he made <laughs> well, Channel I, Orange. I think
1: there, I think there's room for both. Obviously, like I mean, James Blake is still like he's not at the level of say like Frank Ocean, but he's still like enormous, like for someone of his like coming from where he's from. I just think that you know now, I think James Blake might actually be going more that route. Like he seems like have a bit of celebrity going on and a desire to like interface with the public i think like like channel orange was just so huge it could it would blot out basically anything else that was going on aside from like say kendrick lamar in 2012 but like also james blake he was you know on that record with um was a king's dead from the black panther soundtrack as well so that kind of just shows uh james like the level of like james blake infiltration into uh pop music i think he's like more just kind of seen as this like uh collaborator or this a bit of a status symbol James Blake is because like it, when ASAP Rocky would have a guy like James Blake on his record, it's like wow, this guy must be a polyglot genius, man. Like he listens to Tame Paula and James Blake. Wow, like that's just unheard of. But I think it's indicative of like how rap and RB and like indie it whatever you want to describe it as have like kind of merged. Where, um, you know, it's just like the most normal thing in the world to have a guy like that on your record. But I mean, I think that like in the new decade, maybe James Blake is able to like reinvent himself as, I don't know, like kind of a a normie pop act in a way. Like not like Ed Sheeran or James Blunt, but like just a guy who, you know, has hits that are kind of corny and he gets like super popular with like an audience that has like no has no concept of like what it was like to listen to um his you know clavier works or the bells or that 2010 stuff I-, I think he's got it in him
0: well we'll see Ian's bet been ian's ian's betting big on james blake for the 2020s i love it we'll have to check back in 2030 to see how that played out <laughs> now reached the part of our episode called recommendation corner where we each talk about something that we're into this week. Ian,
1: why don't you go first? So, you know, after an a, a, after a entire episode of like talking about like the most ubiquitous, uh, centrist, uh, universally beloved stuff on earth, I have to be true to myself and true to the people who, you know, probably listen to recommendation corner for my recommendation and bring up a, I would say very divisive in a small niche type band called For Your Health. Uh, they're from Columbus, Ohio. I would identify them as Screamo. They're, they've are they got kind of an edgelord sort of Twitter presence where uh, I imagine there are just some people who are not going to like them based on what things they've tweeted. But their uh, debut record, um, In Spite Of, comes out this Friday. And There's a band I'm going to talk uh, hopefully a lot more about in the coming year called the Blood Brothers. Perhaps you might remember them from the early 2000s. One of the guys in Blood Brothers eventually joined Fleet Foxes, but they were this abrasive um, kind of spastic screamo art rock band that like had tight pants and white belts and... um, it's if you're like 18 it can be the most profound like oh this is the sickest music ever and then by the time you're 24 you might be like i, I want to listen to something that doesn't make me so anxiety provoking but you know for your health does a great job of like doing the blood brothers Core type continuum but also they have like more of a political edge and like a fallout boy sort of style of humor one of their song titles is i slept with west isold and all i got was this out of court settlement it's a reference to fallout boy um, and it's the kind of music that I think I listen to as a reset when things start to seem to trend too much towards centrism. It's you know, like I try to listen to the, you know, the nice folk stuff coming on. I try to listen to the UK post-punk, but in actuality, sometimes I just want stuff to tear shit up too. And For Your Health uh, is one of the better examples of that that I've heard in quite some time. Um, it's, it's very abrasive, very angular but also there's some like real actual hooks to it um and so yeah and it takes about like 20 minutes of your time to listen to so for your health in spite of on 12 gauge records um yeah i think that's if if you like the kind of stuff i've talked about here in the past like portrayal of guilt and whatnot like this is this is the next chapter for you So the
0: record I'm going to recommend this week is called Deep Fried Grandeur, and it's a collaboration between Friend of the Podcast, Riley Walker, and uh, this really great Japanese psychedelic band called Kikagagu Moyo. And I hope I Mm. pronounced that correctly. But this is a record that uh, these two acts, they collaborated on in 2018, and it's basically like two jams that last about... 18 to 20 minutes or so and it's just like a really great record and i guess like you were talking about how like i want to listen to screamo records when i'm getting a little too bored with like centrist indie rock i tend to go more in this direction where it's just sprawling awesome guitar music uh that uh has elements of like a post-rock in it but also again kind of come from that psychedelic uh angle as well and um I have to say that, like I hadn't listened to a ton of Kikigagu moyo before this record, and it actually got me into like their older records and I really really like them a lot and i and I'd say the thing about them is that like if you hear psych rock, you might have a certain idea of it coming maybe f- coming more from like a garagey type school, kind of like louder and maybe more abrasive and with that band kikagagu uh, moyo it it's much more velvety and like mm and and groovy and like it it, it just sounds great it, it really kind of sounds like again like sitting in this like plush velvet chair and and just letting these like great grooves and guitar lines wash over you and of course riley walker is uh you may know him from his twitter feed but I, in a way i feel like his twitter feed almost like overshadows his music a lot of the time because in terms of like artists that you could cl- classify as like indie jam you know artists that are sort of in the indie world but also play really exploratory live sets and uh, really kind of explore guitar music, I think in a much more adventurous way than like most indie bands do. Riley to me is like one of the best in the business right now. He actually just announced a new solo record that's going to be coming out later uh, this year called Course and Fable, which uh, I've been fortunate enough to hear already. And, yeah. you know, if you follow Riley, you know that he's a big fan of, of the band Genesis, uh, <laughs> especially like the Peter Gabriel era from the 1970s. And like, yeah. Course in Fable is where that influence really comes into play. It sounds like Selling England by the pl- by the Pound, like that era of Genesis or like Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, Trespass, like all those great Peter Gabriel uh, Genesis records. Uh, Riley's really drawing from that and he's like found a way to like really kind of make it his own. And That's a great record that I'll i'm sure i'll be talking about later on yeah uh this year so um but for now definitely go on Bandcamp and get that record deep fried grandeur uh great record great guitar music uh
1: i I want to i want to point out i want to point out that it's on husky his uh, label husky pants records which i think is one of the just one of the best album one of the best record label names i've heard in quite some time
0: yes fabulous also i have to do a quick shout out i uh On Uproxx today, uh, a story just posted, I did an interview with Craig Finn and Ted uh, Kuber from The Hold Steady where they talk about each of their albums. It's sort of like an oral history of their complete discography. So I think it turned out great. If you're a fan of the band, definitely go check that out. They have their new album, Open Door Policy. That's going to drop next week, which uh, we'll probably talk about on this episode, and I'll argue with Ian about it. Uh,
1: That'll be a lot of fun. What a very on-brand recommendation corner for you, man! Like, or actually for both of us, yeah. The screamo, the the, the 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 velvety psych rock that's inspired by Genesis, and now a whole steady story, man. We our brand is strong. I love it.
0: Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. It's always a pleasure sharing news and views and reviews with all of you. We'll be back with more discussion next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.